The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would, open with me to your New Testaments, to the book of James, chapter 4. That's where we'll find our lesson this evening. James, chapter 4. It's wonderful to be with you once again this evening. I've been encouraged by your presence and participation in worship. I hope that you have as well, and I hope that you'll be edified by this lesson from God's Word. James chapter 4 is where we'll find our lesson this evening. Consider firstly at the outset of James' epistle in chapter 1 and verse 27, he noted at the really conclusion of that first chapter concerning following God's Word, what pure and undefiled religion consists of, at least in part. No sense is verse 27 of chapter 1, the totality of pure and undefiled religion but it certainly looks to do two general concepts, a positive and a negative, but also a couple of specific examples. Note there in verse 27 of James 1, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Religion is the translation of the Greek word threskia, and some of the definitions you'll find of that Greek word is simply worship, worship to God. But I think that maybe there's a more general approach to it. Art and Gingrich gives this definition of the word, expression of devotion to transcendent beings. Sometimes you'll find a definition of ceremonial observance, but not everything necessarily that we do in service to God is ceremonial, like maybe the Lord's Supper might be. And so it essentially consists of devotion to God, to transcendent beings, but we know there's only one, there is the God, the creator of the universe. And if your life is devoted to God, one of the things in which, which will consist in your life is separation from the world, keeping oneself unspotted from the world, free from any and all defilement of the world. If we're devoted to God, we're not a part of this world and we're certainly not to have our minds set on this world. We fast forward to the end of the third chapter of James and he addressed a problem among his readers that they are characterized by worldly wisdom in part. And he describes that worldly wisdom in James 3 in verse 14, that it is comprised of bitter envy and self-seeking. And he says in verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And he says where that envy and self-seeking of verse 14 exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. It has to do with, obviously, selfish ambition, wanting what is best for yourself, wanting to please your own desires, and it is that kind of zeal which has bitter results. And it doesn't descend from above, but it's in the earth, it's on the earth, it's characterized by earthly things. Its focus is not above where God is, but its focus is on the temporal realm that appeals to the senses, wanting to have fleshly gratification, if you will, and it's certainly from Satan. It's demonic. With an individual that is characterized by such wisdom from the world, there's going to be a rebellion to authority. The word translated into confusion means just that. It is opposition to positive authority, and the evil things that are there are sin. And so if an individual, even if they're a Christian, has 
this wisdom, which is characterized as worldly wisdom. Their mind is not set on God's word. Their mind is not set on spiritual matters, but they're infatuated with the physical realm and their driving force is coming from the physical realm and thus resulting in fleshly fulfillment, then they're going to be full of sin. They're going to be opposed to God. And this is what the readers of James were guilty of in part. And in chapter 4, he addressed some problems that the worldly wisdom was causing. It was causing internal conflict, wars and fights among brethren. And he names the reason for it. They come from your pleasures or he desires for pleasure that war in your members is similar language to Romans chapter six and verse 13, where Paul said, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Their members, their bodies were being used as tools to gratification and pleasure, not in service to God. And as that was their focus, it compromised their relationship together as brethren, but at the foundation of that relationship being compromised is their relationship with God being compromised due to their worldliness. And so in verse 4, he tells them, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That's some powerful language that he uses to garner the attention of his readers. The lifestyle that they're involved in is not innocent. And while we read of things, especially you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, that certainly speaks of some pretty severe behavior. But being a friend of the world does not only consist in that kind of severe behavior. Friendship with the world is merely being fond of what the world offers and therefore being motivated by it. And he says, you're not innocent in this. Whether you're on the far extreme end of this friendship with the world or whether you're just kind of inclined to be attracted to these worldly things, you're at enmity with God. In fact, you're an adulteress against God. And I want us to notice especially, keying in on that phrase, do you not know? This was something that he was telling Christians they were guilty of. They were guilty of trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, as we sometimes say, having part of themselves devoted to God and then the other part being free to explore the sinful world. And he says, do you not know that this friendship with the world is enmity with God? Because they did have some intellectual understanding of God and the relationship with Him that should have led them to realize that such fraternizing with the world and relationship with the world is unacceptable and it's illogical. If you have a relationship with God and you know this about God and you know this about the world, then certainly you should understand that you cannot have this relationship with the world. And I don't think it was a matter of intellect that they didn't have that knowledge. He's not suggesting that they did not actually know these facts. But I think sometimes we can know something intellectually, but we don't really get it. We know it on black and white paper, but we're not applying it to our lives. And and that can be a matter of the educational world, having an understanding of the facts of matters and then 
It's a different thing putting them into practice. Uh, an individual in medical school may understand some of the facts, but then not having practiced them, not fully grasp the realization of it. They had some knowledge, but it was dormant. And because they weren't really thinking fully and truly and maturely about these things of God and their relationship with Him, it led them down a road that caused much pain and anguish in that particular group and in their lives as they were guilty of sin and worldliness. So I want us to consider the concept of friendship with the world ultimately based on and keying in on this idea of the knowledge we should have and we do have of God, but not just knowing it intellectually, but really comprehending the implications of such and understanding why then God calls us to sanctification. Consider firstly some fundamental knowledge of God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They should have known that because of who God is. And they know this about God, that God is holy. And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, the apostle says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The call to Christianity is predicated upon God's sanctification, His holiness, the, the fact that He's separated from all that the world has to offer. There's not a thing about Him that even resembles to the very least what Satan is and what he lures the world with. And when James says, do you not know, that's what he's playing on. Don't you know who God is? You are his child. You are his bride, as we'll note in a minute. And based on that relationship you have with him, as you've obeyed the gospel and become members of his church, you should have an understanding of the implications of your relationship to the world but they don't understand the effect of their relationship. And I think a lot of Christians, sadly, fool themselves into thinking that God is more lenient than He actually is. They know He's holy. They read passages like 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16. I know that God can't have anything to do with sin. I know the facts. I see it displayed in the stories of the Old Testament, but in, evidently they don't entirely grasp it, and that's manifested by the way they live their life. They're not seeking for perfection, maturity. They're not seeking for, as Ephesians 4 indicates, we should be seeking growing up into the fullness of Christ. He is the standard. He is the measure that we're trying to reach. And so they play around with the world and they get close to the world and they become fond of the world. From one degree to another, it doesn't matter Friendship with the world, James says, is enmity with God. It's hostility against God. It's a reason for opposition. So you think that you're right with God. You think that you are in a relationship with God. You think you are God's children, but your friendship with the world is actually hostility toward God. You don't love God. You're showing opposition to Him. The New American Standard Bible renders it as such. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So in reality, you've set yourself in opposition against God to the degree that now you are his very enemy, not his child, certainly not his friend. You're his enemy. Friendship with the world. He's not talking about the creation. He's not talking about the people that inhabit his creation. He's talking about the wicked realm of Satan and the lust that he allures people with. Satan is called the ruler of this world several times in the New Testament. And the way he rules is through the sinful lusts 
that he promotes toward those who are inclined to follow them. In 1 John 2 and verse 15, the apostle demonstrates that we're not to love the world or the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not God loving us, but us loving God. Here is a context where there are false teachers claiming that even though they're in the midst of all of this sin, they love God. In fact, they're enlightened and they're better than the readers of John's audience. But he says if there's a love of the world, which there obviously is, the sin is manifest in their life. If they have a love for the world, then there's no way they love God. You cannot love both at the same time. And he identifies what is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul urged his readers in Romans 12 and verse 2 to not be conformed to this world this sinful world, the world that is given over to lust, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is it good and acceptable in the perfect will of God, not the will of Satan, not the will of the world. And so if God is entirely separate from the world, then our friendship with the world makes us opposed to him. And there's no way around that. And we may know that intellectually, but if we know that, then there's a disconnect if we turn to the world and start living like the world. And the world is not something that bothers us. The sinful lusts and fleshly lusts, they're not something that we really have a problem with. We're, we're not avoiding it at all costs, but we're kind of playing close to it and we're getting on the edge of things. We may know it intellectually, but if that's the way we act, then certainly we're not grasping it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Strong defines friendship, the Greek word philia, as fondness. And Vine refers to a man by the name of Mayer in his comments. It involves the idea of loving as well as being loved. And so there's two sides of it. You're fond of the world, but the world also doesn't have any problem with you. We can be a nice person. We can be easy to get along with. We're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And certainly people should be able to see us as good people and not really have any problems with us to that degree. But as we preach this morning, the message of the cross is an offense to the sinful world. And certainly if there is a mutual comfort between us and the world, us to them and them to us, then there's a problem because God is holy and he's totally separate from that. Habakkuk understood that in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13 when he cried to God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God is holy. He can't have anything to do with sin. James played on that in James chapter 1 when he talked about how temptation doesn't come from God. He can't tempt anyone with evil and he certainly can't be tempted himself. But instead, every good and perfect gift comes from him and in him is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, much like 1 John 1 and verse 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's no shadow of turning. There's no variation with God where one day he's bright white light and the next day he's a little more dim. And then sometimes darkness slips in. God is one who does not change at all. And that's why James, I think, says, do you not know? Don't you know who you're involved with? Don't you know who you claim to be following, if, if you really understood that, you certainly wouldn't be acting the way you're acting because God is holy and he's intolerant of sin. 
You think that you're still right with him, but you're not. You're not a child of God, not in practice and not in reality. You've been severed from God and and you need to repent as he calls them to, because God can't have anything to do with sin. Chapter one of first John and verse six says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's essentially what James's audience was guilty of. And that's why he says, don't you know, you can't be in darkness. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we see the holiness of God on display where it's demonstrated with some antonyms of verses 14 through 16. But notice in verse 17, quoting from the Old Testament, Paul says, therefore, come out from among them, the world, sinners, those of darkness, those are unbelievers. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Verse 1 of chapter 7 Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If you really want to be in a relationship with me, first you must separate yourself, come out from among them. That's not just get a little further away. That's entirely sever them from your life. We've got to come to an understanding of just how serious God is about sin. And we cannot just play a game Christianity is not a game. It's not about trying to to pull the right levers and switches and kind of pull a fast one on God and and think that we can kind of put on a show when we come to church or when we're around God's people. But in reality, whether it's in outward manifestation of practice or just in the innermost recesses of our mind, we're friends of the world because we can't get that past God. It just doesn't work. Don't you know, brethren, is what James is saying, who God is and what that requires of you to be in a relationship with him. And so we consider the fundamental relationship that we have with God, the fundamental knowledge of our relationship with God. I want us to note firstly what he says there. You are adulterers and adulteresses. He says that in James 4 and verse 4. James was by no means indicating that his readers were just guilty of adultery outright. In chapter 2 and verse 11, he explained that he who said don't commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He said don't commit adultery, but he's not saying necessarily that they are guilty of actual adultery. Maybe that's part of their worldliness. Certainly adultery is worldly. But he's saying they're committed a spiritual adultery against God. And it plays on the understanding of God's relationship to his people from the very beginning of his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 12, it persisted throughout the time of Israel where they were understood to be the bride of God, their husband. And when they committed sin and when they messed around with the worldliness and pagan religions and idolatry, they were labeled as adulteresses. And even in Jesus's day, He demonstrated that they had the same mindset when they asked for signs. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You just don't want to see. God's not convincing enough for you because your heart is hardened. You are an adulteress. Jehovah was the husband of Israel, his people. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophecy of the new covenant that is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, Jeremiah indicates, God through Jeremiah, that the covenant that he would make with Israel in those coming days was not according to the covenant that he made with their fathers. And notice the language, in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, 
My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Made a covenant with them like a marriage covenant. You said your vows. You dedicated and devoted yourself to me and me alone when I called you out. And even though I was your husband, you broke the covenant. I think it gets more real for us when we understand the language of the Holy Spirit and the revelation. They were unfaithful to their husband. They committed adultery against their husband. This was no small matter. This was no innocent thing. They broke their covenant. In Jeremiah 3 and verse 6, the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah, the king, Jeremiah records, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not returned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Verse 14 says, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. For I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Do you notice in this text, in verse 9, he says it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and was committed, committed adultery with stones and trees. I'm afraid that's what James's readers were guilty of. And anyone who claims to be devoted to God and messes around with the things of this world They're guilty of casual harlotry. It's not a big deal. It's not that bad. I understand the Bible says it's sin. I understand the Bible says God is opposed to it, even though the world doesn't look at it as that big of a deal. And I don't understand why God would make such a big deal about it. It's harlotry. It's adultery. And even though you commit it in a casual manner, it's a dastardly offense toward God. So Israel was put away for her adultery. In Isaiah 50 and verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. But consider the transition into the covenant we find ourselves under. There would be another marriage. There would be a restoration, a reconciliation. In Isaiah 54 and verse 5 The scripture records that your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife. When you were refused, says your God, your redeemer will be your husband. There'll be a time when although you're put away, there will be opportunity to return and be married to God. Once again, you'd committed adultery, have been put away. They were put away for good, ultimately. Now there's this opportunity to return. And that's what we did when we obeyed the gospel. We were married. We were betrothed to Christ. In John 3 and verse 29, speaking, uh, John speaking of, of Christ and when his disciples questioned him about what he was doing and what he heard Jesus was doing, he spoke about his humility and the fact that he had simply prepared the way for Christ And he says in verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He's not the bridegroom. Christ is. And so as Christ comes around and he starts preaching and he starts baptizing, he starts teaching and gaining followers, that's something that caused John joy because he is not the bridegroom. He is part of the bride. He is the people who will follow God. And we see that description further in the New Testament, namely a primary text of Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul by inspiration is speaking and making points about marriage and Christ in the church, and they're playing off one another. He uses Christ in the church to describe how a husband and a wife should be in marriage, and he uses a husband and wife in marriage to describe how the church is to Christ. Verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, The husband is head of the wife. It's also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. That leaves nothing out. In everything, we are subject to our husband who is Christ. He is the one with authority and we do every single thing he says. He continues in a description with verse 25 saying, Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. But notice what that sacrifice was purposed toward. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It speaks of baptism, washing of water by the word, born of water in the spirit from John chapter 3 and verses 3 and 5. We're cleansed in his blood through the watery grave of baptism. But when we rise up, we walk in newness of life. It's one that is a life of sanctification and cleanliness, a life that is growing in that holiness, not having spot or wrinkle, so that when we are presented in the end at the marriage feast on judgment day, we are holy and without blemish, not kind of better than we were before, but still messing around with the world, still being behind God's back doing things that are unspeakable, that are against His will. And lastly, notice the description of this marriage that we're involved in. In verse 30, he says, For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. And quoting from Genesis chapter 2, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. This great mystery is just the illustration that he posed there in verse 30 and 31. Have you ever thought of the husband and wife relationship as it consists of being in one flesh as a parallel with Christ and the church? That's what he's saying. When you enter a marriage relationship, you're not to be joined with any other in any way. You are cleaving to, holding on to your spouse. And as spouses, we can understand that, especially in our spirit of jealousy that is is justified because they belong to us and we belong to them and, and no little messing around is okay. And we have a zero tolerance policy with our spouses as it should be to protect our marriage. That's what he's saying here. One flesh, you are a part of Christ and Christ is a part of you to the exclusion of all others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the actual sin of sexual immorality is discussed. But with this theme in mind from Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 30 through 32, it resonates even more 
as we are members of Christ's body and therefore his bride. In verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, certainly alluding to the actual sin of sexual immorality. But when we were joined to Christ in our baptism, we became a member of the church and therefore the bride of Christ. We made a commitment and a devotion to be one with him, not with anyone else. And in James chapter 4, he indicates that friendliness with the world breaks that covenant. It commits treachery against God. We betray Him. We turn our backs on Him. And we commit adultery. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. This definitely, for me, puts friendship with the world in a new light. You think about it on that plane where he mentions this sin of adultery. When Christians associate with worldliness, they show themselves to be friends of the world and they're committing adultery. And it's something that we can understand and relate to. When we have a temptation to make nice with the world and dabble in worldly things and, and investigate that and experiment with that in any way, get close to it, we need to stop and think about who we are to God and who God is to us. Not only is He holy, but we are His bride. It wouldn't fly in our physical marriage, and it certainly shouldn't in our spiritual marriage. As James chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? It's no doubt that the Holy Spirit dwells within the Christian. It's a question of how. And I think we can see how by James 1 and verse 21 when he talks about this implanted word, the word of God, the law of liberty, which is able to save your souls. It's within us. It's been implanted there by God. And it's the direction that he has for us to follow. The word of God is the spirit's instrument. And so the spirit dwells in us through the word of God. What James is pointing out there is that the scripture says in general, not in any particular and specific place are these words quoted verbatim, but it says in general that God wants All of you, he doesn't give you instruction for you to obey in part and then discard the other part. He wants every part of you. He yearns jealously, or as Galatians 5 and verse 16 indicates, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. He does not wish to share his bride with another. And so we shouldn't even get close to the world. Do you not know who God is? And do you not know your relationship to Him? And therefore, do you not know what your relationship to the world should be? Not fond of the world, not making nice with the world, not being mutually comfort, comfortable with the world and the world with you. But you are merely in the world. You exist on planet Earth and you're surrounded by that sin in the world. But you are not of the world. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Physically speaking, we didn't move anywhere when we were baptized into Christ. 
but we were conveyed somewhere else. We were transported. We were transferred somewhere else. That word power is the Greek word exosia. It's the authority of darkness. He's speaking of the authority of Satan. He is the ruler of this world. You were under his direction and under his command, whether you knew it or not. And when you came to that knowledge, you obeyed the gospel to be freed from that. And indeed, you were freed from that. And now you are in Christ's kingdom. We're not part of the world. We are part of Christ's kingdom. In Romans 6 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul speaks of this slavery relationship, either to sin and therefore death or to righteousness and therefore life eternal. And he said, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That language is telling. We obeyed that form of doctrine, the gospel of Christ. And that was to separate us from that sin, to make us alive as we walk in newness of life. But we were delivered to that doctrine. It means you're not in the same place anymore spiritually. You're not submitting to the same power or authority anymore. But you are therefore delivered to another authority. So you're not under the direction of Satan anymore. You're not under the direction of sin anymore. You're supposed to be submitting to Christ's word in totality. While we live in the same place on planet Earth where all this unrighteousness is, we're not serving the same master. And spiritually speaking, we're not in the same place. Not at all. John chapter 17, speaking in his prayer of his chosen apostles, and then he would transition in verse 20 to all the believers We can still learn from these words as they definitely pertain in a general way to who those should be that the Lord calls. When in John 17 and verse 14 in Jesus' prayer, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That's the opposite of friendship with the world. There's no mutual comfort and love and fondness, but they hate him. They hate them just as they hated Jesus. And he says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Meaning we're not asking God and he's not asking God to take us entirely away from everyone and everything in this world that we are fighting against and we are struggling against every day, but that you protect them. They make sure they don't turn back to the evil one. They don't turn back to the submission of Satan, but they maintain their separation and their distinction as people, not of the world, but those who are followers of Christ. And he adds in verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What sets us apart from the world is God's word. It sets us apart from sin and it continually sets us apart from being anything close to the world. It keeps us pure before our husband, Christ. It keeps us separate from all that would make us separate from God. In John 8 and verse 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But the truth only continues to make you free if you continue to abide in it. We're among those walking according to the rule of Satan, but we are under the rule of Christ, which means anything that even has the hint of Satan's direction and power is something we should turn away from because in reality, we're enemies of the world. In verse 14, that's what John indicated in his record of Jesus's words, that is. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. 
Jesus had mentioned this earlier in John the 15th chapter when he said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. That's just it. We don't belong to them, and they know that, or they should. Yeah, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Servants not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Or as James says in James 4 and verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, logic implies that if friendship with the world is hostility toward God and therefore the world is the enemy of God and we become the enemy of God, if we become the friends of the world, that if we are the friend of God, as Acts chapter or James chapter two indicates, Abraham was, he was called a friend of God, then we will be enemies of the world. And we need to remember that The world is not represented as the people of the world, but what the people of the world are involved in. What they're enchanted by, what they're under the sway of. Our quarrel is not with people. Our quarrel is with Satan and the sin which is promoted and adhered to in the lives of those individuals. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12 The Apostle Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of the wickedness in the heavenly places. That puts it in a new light as well. If we are truly God's disciples, if we're being faithful to Him, as we sang about just before the lesson, to Christ be loyal and be true, your faith and your fidelity, the fervor of your love, If that is true, then those same concepts, fervidness, zealousness, is set against in opposition to as the enemy of all that is involved with the world. Our energy should not merely be devoted in a positive manner toward God, but it should be devoted in a negative manner toward the world. We're at hostility against the world where the world's enemies because we've aligned ourselves with God, which means we don't fraternize with the enemy. We are certainly beyond enemy lines, and we've got to understand that. When we come across what is worldly, we don't make light of it, and we certainly don't ignore it. We attack it at all costs. And this is exactly what he pointed out before noting the armor of God we need to put on to be successful in this warfare in chapter 5 of Ephesians in verse 8. He says, you were once in darkness. That is, you were once on that side. You were once opposed to God, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Again, a parallel with Romans 12 and verse 2. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, not conformity to the world, but transforming of our minds by His will. And as you're transformed and as you're walking in that way, finding out what the Lord wants us to be as those who are combating our enemy in the world, we're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. In other words, if you're not exposing that darkness... If you're not actively pointing out that sin and are militant in your life as a Christian, then the logical implication is that you are not a part of that light. 
Because light exposes. Light exposes wherever it goes. And if there is not an exposure of what is in the darkness, then it must not be light. And so we're not just going into the world and showing the world our love for God. We're showing the world our disdain for the world. We quoted from Galatians chapter 6 this morning where the Apostle Paul said he only boasts in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom he has been crucified to the world and, uh, and, and the world to him. The world does not like him and he does not like the world because he's on the Lord's side and he's actively and consistently opposed to the world. We've always got to ask ourselves this question. Don't we know who we're claiming to serve? And don't we know our relationship to him? And don't we know the implications of such regarding our relationship to the world? We don't get close to the world. We don't make light of sin and sinful matters. We don't understand merely intellectually that something is sinful and we ought not to do it, but we understand the heart of the matter, that it's entirely opposed to God, and it's a disgusting offense to be fond of such a thing because we're married to another and we belong to Him. And we certainly ought not to make nice with our enemies. But the first step into that relationship with God through Christ is baptism. As we indicated in Romans chapter 6, they had obeyed that form of doctrine to which they had been delivered, and that obedience is highlighted in the first four verses. that They were baptized into the death of Christ, and they were raised just as He was raised to walk in newness of life, a newness of how they live, a new relationship, and everything that goes with it. And you can make that decision this evening to not be a part of the world that is entirely opposed to God, but to be on God's side because... I'll tell you that we are given a peer into the future and how this war will play out. The devil doesn't win. Worldliness does not persist, but it's destroyed. And only those, as 1 John 2 and verse 17 indicates, who do the will of God abide forever. So won't you do the will of God this evening? If you have obeyed the gospel and there's any other spiritual need that we can assist you with, we urge you to come forward as well while we stand and sing the song that was selected.